Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. As always, I think I'm Andrew Rushby and I'm joined by Hannah Wakeford and Hugh Osborne. In this episode, we have a very special guest on the show, a titan of exoplanet characterization, Dr. Mark Marley from NASA Ames. We'll be talking all about things planetary from the solar system and beyond, pushing the limits of the definition all the way up to brown dwarfs. As always, later in the show, we'll also have our guest adopt a new planet into the Exocast family, so stick around to hear which one is selected for the special honour this month, and more importantly, if it might have a shot at getting into the ExoCup this year. But before we do any of that, I'm going to throw things over to Hannah for a bit more of a detailed uh, introduction to our guest. So, Hannah. Yeah, we are very lucky on the show this month to have Dr. Mark Marley, who is a research scientist at NASA Ames Research Center in California. And Mark actually has been working in the field for a long time. He got his BS in geophysics and planetary science from Caltech in 84, and his PhD in planetary science from the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory at the University of Arizona in 1990. And then he went on to do a postdoc at Ames, where he is currently working, and at New Mexico State. And then he is currently a civil servant, but excitingly has an announcement for the show here that you are going actually back to Arizona. You're going to be leading the Lunar and Planetary Lab where you got your PhD. Is that right? That's right. I'm very excited. So welcome to the show. It's really exciting to have you here. I'm, I'm sure that many of the things that we're going to talk about today are going to be very familiar to our audience. So uh, I'm ready to get going. You ready? I'm ready. So your, your interest in planets came from a very early age, you've said. And what kind of led from that interest into the career we just heard about, you know, going into planetary science and then on to do a PhD, how did that end up in exoplanets? Because in 84, when you, when you kind of started, they weren't really around. Right. So the, uh, you know, my PhD was uh, mostly on the interior of the giant planets and the rings of Saturn. And also during that time, the interest in brown dwarfs was uh, beginning to ramp up. And uh, I wrote a paper in the 80s with uh, Bill, my advisor, Bill Hubbard and Jonathan Lunin on brown dwarfs. And when I finished my degree, um, I was asked to come up to Ames by Jim Pollock, who was this sort of uh, you know, titan of planetary science who had done all these fundamental things. And he needed somebody to do planetary atmospheres to study the atmospheres of the giant planets in our own solar system. <clears throat> and I didn't know a lot about that, but I'd done a lot of numerical modeling and computer modeling at different systems. And so it was a good fit. And I spent my postdoc years in the early 90s taking a computer code that Chris McKay had developed to study the atmosphere of Titan and adopting that to do uh, models of the temperature structure of the Jovian planets in our own solar system. And Jim Pollock wanted to be able to study them through time. And one insight he had early on was, you know, in the past, the temperature structure could be very different. and Today, we tend to think of uh, kind of these cartoon atmospheres for the solar system where there's convection very deep in the atmosphere and radiation higher up. And he said, well, in the past, that might not always be the case. You might have multiple stacked convection and radiative zones. So one of my jobs was to make the code do that. And the application was to study Uranus and Neptune, and then we were going to study the evolution of these planets. And I did study uh, energy balance for, for Uranus. And then unfortunately, Jim Pollock died very young. And so we never were able to do this evolutionary study. And then I got a um, faculty job in New Mexico and continued my collaborations with the folks in Arizona. And then in 95, when there was this discovery of 229b, the first brown dwarf, and 51 peg b, the first exoplanet, uh, there was a lot of excitement and desire to start studying these. And my collaborators in Arizona were like, well, we need a 1D radiative convective model to study how 
convection and radiation interacts in these atmospheres. And I had just spent the previous three or four years developing one, originally focused for our own solar system's planets. But then it turned out to be the perfect tool to study these objects. And so that's how I got into it. And we wrote our uh, first brown dwarf paper in uh, in 95 about Gliese 229b. And the things that we did there, uh, studying the atmosphere and the spectra of that brown dwarf, um, are still fundamentally the same things we do today. So it's really kind of the driving force behind this was planetary science. It was our solar system right from the start, driving our understanding of these new discoveries. Right. And that's what it's, it's always been very interesting because, you know, our group and if some other groups came into exoplanets, came into brown dwarfs from the planetary side, and then sort of the majority of folks came in from the astronomy side because the early exoplanet discoveries were fundamentally astronomical techniques for studying binary stars and surveys and all the classics of astronomy. And so they kind of met at this in-between. It's like, oh my gosh, now we have these planets. How do we characterize them? What can we learn about them? So treating them more as that kind of individual rather than the the way in which we detect them through the star. Okay, well, what is this that we found around this star? Exactly. And one of the problems uh, early exoplanet science had, I think, is that because so much of the, I mean, the discovery was all driven from the astronomical side. And these a lot of astronomers, in most places, there's not both planetary scientists and astronomers in the same department it's kind of, or in the same university or institution. It's kind of a, a oddity of history. And so a lot of times the astronomers didn't know very many planetary scientists. And there was a little bit of an early disconnect uh, uh, between the two that we've tried this whole time to try to, to bridge and and show good practices of how everybody can work together. So you're talking there about brown dwarfs, and I, you know I'm quite familiar with the like ancient history of exoplanets, as it were. You know how we went through hot Jupiters and gradually moved into more diverse uh, planets. But I'm not at all familiar with the history of brown dwarfs. Was it contemporaneous? How how were the first brown dwarfs detected, and and which one you know compared to, comparing brown dwarfs and hot Jupiters, which one better mirrors Jupiter in our own solar system? So I mean, the idea of brown dwarfs was old. I mean, old as in early '60s. People figured out that you know there's no reason you couldn't, uh, the universe couldn't make stars below the hydrogen burning minimum mass, which is something like 80 Jupiter masses. And right. so there should be these objects which had various names, black dwarfs. And Jill Tarter in the I think in the Seventies came up with the name of uh, brown dwarfs for these objects because they probably had clouds and who knows what colors they would be. Um, and so there was a big effort as the infrared detector technology got better. And the reason brown dwarfs are cool, unlike a star, they don't fuse hydrogen to helium, and so they just cool off. Uh, stealing a line from a Blondie song, you know, they they fade away and radiate. They just get fainter and fainter over time. And so cool things show up more in the infrared than at visible wavelengths. And so there was a lot of effort to go find these objects in the infrared. And they proved elusive, and there was a few false starts, objects that weren't really there. I have a paper about a brown dwarf that does not exist. Um, <laughs> but eventually, uh, you know, in mid-90s, the first unmistakable brown dwarf showed up because it had uh, uh, methane in its atmosphere. And methane only shows up in cool atmospheres, so you knew it had to be cool. It had to be a brown dwarf because no star is cool enough to have methane. But this was um, like a directly imaged brown dwarf, so unlike yes, Jupiter's group. That's right. So this was the directly imaged brown dwarf. So we had data, right? Right from the get-go, there was data, there was spectra of the first brown dwarf, whereas the 51 peg B was just a wiggle on a graph, right? It was just yeah. a radio velocity. <laughs> And so it took a while for exoplanets to catch up and actually start to have spectra. Uh, but, both, but exoplanets like brown dwarfs, they're hydrogen helium, the, the giant exoplanets, they're hydrogen helium dominated atmospheres, water, carbon monoxide, methane, all these molecules. And so it turned out that a lot of the things we were doing for brown dwarfs, clouds too, um, also related to uh, to exoplanets. And so it's sort of the same temperature domain, the atmospheric structure is different. 
So you kind of mentioned it there. We've got these three very distinctly different regions of planetary science and astrophysics coming together. We've got brown dwarfs, we've got exoplanets, and we've got our solar system planets. And it seems that the chemistry kind of ties them all together. But what are the biggest differences? What are the hurdles that we've had to come that we've actually come across and that we've had to kind of get over to bring to marry all of that together? I'm really proud that our very first brown dwarf paper, uh, my 95 paper, we talk about brown dwarfs, Jupiter, giant exoplanets, and kind of point to these where there's overlap. Uh, And so there is a lot of overlap, but there's also very different structures. And so the hot Jupiters are radiated, of course. They get all this flux from the outside. And so instead of this sort of... profile where there's again convection at depth and then radiation at the top it torques the temperature profile around and it can be you can have a temperature inversion where it gets hotter as you go up sort of like we do in the earth's stratosphere and so that's again why this or this code that it turned out i had spent this time on to study radiated planets like uranus and neptune um, also then applied for exoplanets they were being radiated and we could study the incidence of you know, where the radiation goes in the atmosphere and how the atmosphere heats up but the but the transport properties of how uh, molecules are carried around in the atmosphere is different um, the chemistry is fundamentally the same but you're in different regions the importance of disequilibrium chemistry comes in although you also have that in brown dwarfs so it's a lot it's all the same processes you can think of them as knobs on your radio control board and different objects different things is more important or less important Uh, and that's why it's also fascinating is because it really these things all really relate to each other at a pretty fundamental level yeah, you've kind of hinted that, you know, a lot of this framework comes around the models and something that I bring up whenever possible on this show is clouds and clouds have formed a big mm-hmm. part of the work that you've done for all of these different astrophysical objects. And the, the Ackerman and Marley cloud description is something that is kind of forms a basis of a lot of the studies that are being done and, and trying to understand them. Could you kind of describe to us what is the role of clouds? Why are they so important? And, and how we ha- have to understand them in these different, completely different kind of places in our universe. Right. Well, I mean, you know, pretty much every place you look in the solar system, clouds are, clouds are present. And they affect the temperature structure. They affect the chemistry. They affect the energy transport through the atmosphere. And so just looking at the solar system, it's really easy to predict, well, clouds are going to be really important in these other domains too, except that they're different clouds. Um, and so as you've, I know you've talked about here many times, is you get <clears throat> these exotic species, these silicate grains, you can get iron drops, uh, other refractory species, um, just because the temperature and pressure conditions in those parts of the atmosphere favor uh, forming these condensates. Um, and then once, <clears throat> once you form a cloud, it removes those species from the atmosphere. So if you form an iron cloud, for example, you don't have the iron compounds like iron hydride uh, above the cloud deck. Um, and so when you're trying to characterize a planet, like what is it made of, you have to take into account the stuff that's formed. The silicate grains you know, famously take up like 20% of the oxygen. So if you have a planet that has a silicon cloud deck, and then you report the oxygen abundance or the water abundance, you have to say, okay, that's not really the actual abundance. It's what I'm seeing because I've lost some of the, some of the oxygen. And clouds blanket the atmosphere, the radiation that wants to escape, they can prevent the radiation from escaping, so they keep the atmosphere warmer than it would otherwise be. If you're looking at transit, of course, um, transit spectra where the uh, photons are just skimming through the atmosphere, they can run into clouds and it uh, uh, masks your absorption features. And so pretty much from every angle, from the characterization, from the chemistry, from the dynamics, the uh, latent heat effects, all kinds of processes, the clouds are really closely coupled to what's going on with the atmosphere. 
And are there lessons learned from the solar system giants? Are there things that we can relate, even though Jupiter is so much colder in a very kind of different solar environment? The radiation is nowhere near as much as these hot Jupiters and the internal heat is nowhere near as much as these brown dwarfs. So is there some kind of way of relating that to something that we've got more of a ground truth on or or is that something that we still don't quite understand? Well, I think we certainly can look to these planets to understand okay, what's controlling the clouds. Like the earliest brown dwarf clouds or with the, the famous dusty models uh, used to try to characterize brown dwarfs where the, uh, the assumption was the, the dust, the clouds are present all the way homogeneously through the atmosphere. So the cloud forms and you just have clouds all the way to the very top. And we know from looking at Jupiter, well, that's not what happens, right? Clouds sediment down, they fall down, you have cloud decks. We can also look at Jupiter and say, well, the, also, you know, Jupiter is not perfectly homogeneous. You have storms, you have holes in the clouds, you have places where the clouds are higher than average. There's all this dynamics and all these feedbacks. So it's probably not a good idea to try to characterize these as a homogeneous global uh, global layer. And so we don't even understand there's, you know, even on Earth where there's vast amounts of data, clouds are a real challenge still to, to characterize and people fly airplanes through them and collect the particles and measure the particle sizes and try to have macrophysical models to figure out what size the raindrops are. And we're never going to, of course, have that kind of data for, for exoplanets. And so it's just a real lesson in humility, I think, about how hard this problem is. So you are making this big move from Ames, where you've been since 2000. You've been there a really long time. You are uh, a longtime civil servant for uh, NASA. You're moving back to uh, the University of Arizona to head up the Lunar and Planetary Lab, which is a, a you know huge planetary science department. What are you? What are your plans for that? What What made you want to do that? What kind of drove you to kind of leave the NASA environment and go? Actually, I'm going back to a university. I'm going back to this educational environment. Um, and and what do you see happening in the in the field of exoplanets from that planetary perspective in the coming years? <laughs> There's a lot to unpack there. I'm just kind of laughing. Sorry, <laughs> you can focus on the science side of things. If that you was want. about three questions in there. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I was originally from Arizona, and I grew up in Phoenix. And, you know, when I was really getting excited about planets in high school, uh, and trying to figure out, you know, what am I going to do with my life? And how, you know, how can you even go and study planets? I wrote them a letter. And I said, you know, I'm interested in planets, you know, you know, basically, what, what do I do? Or what can you do for me? And they wrote a really nice letter back and said, well, we really don't have much of an undergraduate program. And, um, you know, you should probably go and, and get a degree someplace. Maybe you could come here for grad school. So that was my first interaction with them way back in the 70s. Um, and it's a really great program. And there's so many fantastic people there now that do everything from asteroid sample return. Osiris Rex is going to mm -hmm. bring this fantastic sample back. Uh, astrobiology, all kinds of Mars research, the high-rise camera orbiting Mars is returning. Uh, continues to return fantastic data. And so I've always, you know, planetary science has always been my first and core interest. And then I ended up wandering off into astronomy and, and brown dwarfs and so on. And so this is a kind of a chance for me to kind of come home, both home to Arizona and home to planetary science and um, help lead the department kind of into the, into the next decade. And there's a lot of things that, uh, a lot of great ideas people have <clears throat> in planetary science. I want to help facilitate putting uh, you know, seismometers on solar system planets, um, doing the analysis of the OSIRIS-REx sample return. But one thing I do want to foster, and you know, in talking to the university through the whole hiring process, they're enthusiastic about and, and are going to support, is trying to bring more of this science at the interface of planetary and exoplanets. And again, I kind of come back to this sort of history of exoplanets ended up because of the detection methods growing more in the astro side than the planetary side. Mm -hmm. And I think there's so much that can be done 
you know, from my own group's experience, when you do both, you do both the planetary science and the exoplanet science, and you bring that intuition, well, how do clouds work on Jupiter, to how do clouds work in a hot Jupiter? And Adam Schulman, who was there and, and sadly passed away last year, uh, was a, also a, a pioneer in doing these kind of global dynamical models, global circulation models for how the winds carry the energy around, both in solar system planets and in uh, exoplanets and also brown dwarfs. And so it's that kind of science at the intersection of these things that among a lot of other things I want to do is I really want to try to foster that and bring in postdocs and faculty that work in that in that domain. Yeah, there's a lot of language that kind of mixes between the two there. So I think that's something that we all all trying to work on a little bit. Yeah, I think so. And I think it, you know, I mean, there's examples, there's lots of examples, of course, of how exoplanet science, you know, can learn from planetary, but there's also a lot of examples of where planetary can learn from exoplanets. And, you know, why are the hot Jupiters irradiated? And is there anything in that process that maybe we've missed from the planetary side? Uh, or what do we know about the, from the population statistics or how planets lose atmospheres or the importance of a atmospheric escape? And can we map that back into the solar system? So there's lots of opportunities, I think, from a lot of different angles for there to be uh, synergy and that, that happens when everybody's in the same place. So it sounds um, like you're, you're bringing some things together here on Earth, uh, but there are some things that are happening on orbit that are also kind of exciting. And I'd like to shift our discussion to um, to some space telescopes, if that's okay. Um, you are involved in in a couple, including the uh, the Nancy Grace Roman, um, but I'd like to focus on Louvois to start, if that's okay, as you're the exoplanet um, group lead uh, for Louvois, which we've talked about here on the show before, the Large UV Optical Infrared Surveyor. So Louvois is a, a mature mission concept for a large on-orbit multi-purpose telescope. And that's was studied for the 2020 astrophysics decadal. Um, so we've we talked quite a lot about Louvois on the show before, but given it's quite a complex, uh, you know, kind of mission concept with two potential uh, mission architectures, there seems to be, you know, a lot more to discuss. But perhaps a good place would be to focus on this interdisciplinary element, which we've already touched on, because Louvois seems to be trying to do that in space as well, bringing together a little bit more of the solar system side and the and the astrophysics side. But um, so what are some of the benefits that the challenges of designing a telescope that's got such a wide remit to do both of those things at the same time. Yeah, participating in the Lavoir study was one of the real highlights of the last three or four years now, uh, bringing together the scientists to help define what the, the, the science goals are and the fantastic engineers at Goddard who have created uh, this telescope. Um, of course, we're waiting for the decadal survey who is going to hand down their recommendations of what the next big astrophysics mission should be. And hopefully something like LeVar is what's going to come out of it. Um, but what is exciting is LeVar was designed from the ground up to do, as you said, and both solar system and all kinds of astronomy, including exoplanets. And so LeVar can look at any planet, including Venus at times, all the way out. It has a giant sun shield that allows it to, to, to see all the planets. It tracks the planets. Uh, you know, uh, Heidi Hamill had to fight for years to give JWST solar system tracking capability because they didn't want to do that. Uh, whereas uh, LeVar is designed from the ground up, it can track all the planets. Um, but it, you know, it, especially looking into the, the ultraviolet, and there's so much we can learn about exoplanets in the ultraviolet, solar system planets in the ultraviolet. That's one capability that's really unique uh, to Louvoir. It was designed in from the beginning. Um, but also atmospheric characterization, measuring lots of, the, the, for example, photochemical products, gases, trace gases that you can best detect uh, uh, from space. And so I think fundamentally, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a capability that will be able to do all kinds of science, including solar system science, astronomy, exoplanet science. And is that exoplanet science, is that mostly the directly imaged planets, transiting planets? Uh, what, what kind of worlds are we talking about? Right. So it can do both. And so it was designed to do both from the beginning. It could do great transit science. Um, again, in the UV, which, you, uh, which as you well know, has sort of limited 
UV transit capabilities, but also uh, direct imaging. And I thought I kind of from the beginning, I've always had a soft spot in my heart for direct imaging detection of planets because you get to see the planet as a little dot and you say, okay, that's a real planet as again, as opposed to transit. A little bit more like the brown dwarf spectra that you you talked about. Yeah, you can see the individual spectra. Or for for now, uh, from the ground, we can see thermal emission, hot, young, glowing planets. What Louvoir would do is give us reflected light, particularly at at optical wavelengths. So you could see, you know, a Jupiter at 2 AU, or you could see an Earth spectrum for an Earth-like planet in the habitable zone. And looking at light directly reflecting off of the planet. Uh, you know, transit tends to probe higher in the atmosphere. Uh, if you have, let's say, water clouds going back to our clouds and a habitable planet, if the water is all tied up in clouds and you see a transit spectrum above the clouds, you might not know, is there water there or is there not water there? But light that's gone down into the atmosphere, rattled around and bounced off, carries the signature of water for that same cloudy planet. And so that's why Louvoir is designed from the beginning to be able to you know, detect biosignatures, um, hopefully determine if ham planets are habitable. And then for the bigger planets like Jupiter and Saturn, you can do all kinds of fantastic um, uh, comparative planetology type science um, uh, with reflected light planets from Louvoir. So, so Mark, what about the, the two different uh, potential architectures? There's Louvoir A and, and B, and they have different size mirrors, amongst other things. Um, how would those differences then be kind of borne out in the science? Is, is planetary going to lose out? Is exoplanets going to lose out, so to speak, if, if we have to downsize a little bit in, in that respect? Well, I think planetary is okay, because most of the planetary targets are bright. Uh, some of the things you could do with Louvoir is like surveys for Kuiper Belt objects and detect really faint uh, objects far from the sun, and you'd you'd lose a little bit of that if you go smaller. Uh, what really, what you really want, I think, for especially the, the the life search, the habitable planet characterization, is you need a lot, right? You probably want to have as many targets as you can get, and we have no idea how you know rare, true living planets are. And as you go down in size, you just run out of time progressively as you go smaller and smaller. And you run out of planets and you run out of time to take the spectra. Because even with a 15-meter space telescope, getting a spectrum, you have to sit there and integrate uh, and put piece together your spectra of uh, your interesting targets. And it's just so much more efficient and so much faster um, if you can do that with a bigger with a bigger telescope. And to kind of put that into perspective, I mean, Hubble's uh, two and a half, James Webb's going to be six and a half meters across. We're talking something over twice the size of the James Webb Space Telescope here with the, the Louvoir mission. That's what we need? Or is that really just kind of the ideal middle ground? Well, I mean, so folks like to say Louvoir is a concept. Louvoir is an idea. <laughs> it's not a size, right? And so... When we were putting it together, we sort of put together these different mission points, one of which is like, this is as big as you're going to be able to launch with foreseeable mm. rockets, right? Uh, the, you know, the whether it's the SLS system or the SpaceX Super Heavy, you can get a certain size. And so we say, okay, what's the biggest thing we can launch? And then let's look at something that maybe it's a little bit smaller, it's more affordable, and then the HABAC study looked even smaller for sort of something in between the uh, JWST size and the and the Louvoir size. Um, so there's strengths and weaknesses to all of these things. Um, I, having looked at this as much <clears throat> as we have in designing Louvoir, I really think that something you really need like an eight, nine, ten meter telescope just to get the spectra, because these things are faint, again, right? If you're looking at an Earth at 10 parsecs away and it's half illuminated at, at uh, half phase, you need to sit there and integrate for two weeks or so to build up the spectra. Even with your giant space telescope, it takes a long time to collect all those photons. Uh, it's just a hard problem. And so it just bigger makes it easier. And would you say the the kind of launch capabilities or the engineering side is is the primary 
it's primarily the limiting the limiting factor here it's not like the ambition is not there it's just how can we fit this into the into the fairing <laughs> yeah it's got to fold up and fit in the fairing and uh, you know you you know you know JWST already has these two wings that kind of fold out and uh, the Lavoir A I think has two on each side so there's this whole deployment the sun shield because it's not uh, infrared telescope like JWST, it doesn't have this complicated sun shield that's been so much of a trouble for JWST. It's really uh, just a shade, uh, to, uh, and it's easier to deploy. But it's big. The instruments, each individual instrument is the size of a rail car. So that's the kind of scale that you've got to build, you've got to test that, you've got to integrate it. There's uh, NASA has one facility uh, that you could put Lavoir in and test it. And so that also kind of decide that that was the maximum size, right? Because you've got to be able to test it. You've got to put it in a vacuum chamber, and uh, there's just a lot of challenges in that. But you know, the people. I mean, there's even issues like what bridge do you have to drive it back? There's, a, I think, there's a limiting factor of the size of a bridge someplace, and so the engineers at Goddard have thought about all this. It's just staggering, and uh, said, "Yeah, we can build this. We can test it. We can launch it." It's an amazing array of things that you possibly don't consider when you're thinking, okay, well, this is the science we want to do. The question of how we do it is sometimes a lot more complicated than we thought. So thank you for giving a little bit of insight to our listeners that you've got to think about the size and the weight distribution on a bridge so that we can get it across the country. I wonder, I wonder at what point in the James Webb discussions the Panama Canal came up and, and the, the questions around that. And the pirates, right? And the pirates, yeah. Potential beachings now as well, which we're not taking into account, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, true. What are some of the other like challenges it took? Because uh, you're obviously part of this big interna- international interdisciplinary team to to get you know to to get Louvois into its position that it is now. Uh, what are some of the other challenges? Were there political hurdles and budget hurdles that that were in your way there, and how did that work? Well, I mean, again, we're waiting. We so the way this process works is every ten years, NASA does this big uh, community study, say, you know, what should we be doing for the next ten years? So HST Hubble Space Telescope grew out of such a study. James Webb grew out of such a study. Nancy Grace Roman grew out of such a study. And so looking forward, after we get these things launched, what should be the next thing? And so there's this, what's called the decadal review, where uh, teams go off and study different mission concepts. And so there has been four big missions studied for this next you know, coming decade of what NASA should, should start. And two of them are fundamentally uh, you know, reflected light exoplanet missions, LeVar and HabEx. And uh, there's also Origin Space Telescope, which would do a lot of great science in the infrared, kind of like a super JWST. Um, and so our job is not so much to solve the how do you pay for it problem. It's more to design, here's a mission that could do this, and this would be the capabilities. And here's another mission that could maybe do it a little bit more scaled down. And the cost people go and figure out you know, what would be the cost. What are the less, because, you know, famously JWST, the cost kept growing and growing and growing. We don't want to make those same mistakes again. So the Lavoir costing has been very clear eyed, uh, tried to look at the end to end life cycle. How do you build this thing? How do you make, there's so many mirror segments. How do you make these segments kind of like, you know, the Keck telescope has all these segments. You've got to make all of these to very tight precision. And the idea is then to try not to have surprises, not to have cost surprises, and really have a believable cost. And that's been the, the, the journey that been the, the team took, was to say, okay, here is this thing, here's everything we know about it, here's all the studies we've done. And this committee, any day now, it's supposed to be by May, I think, or in spring, whenever the last day of spring is. That was going to be my next question. If you had any insight, so we, we'll no, keep it secret. No, the listeners all, will keep it secret. Okay. So no, <laughs> I know people on the committee, and I'm very careful not to ask because I'm sure it would be very annoying to be asked because they're really asked <laughs> to be, you know, they want to be able to, you know, decide and, and talk among themselves and say, oh my gosh, this is too big or this is not big enough. And, so many people have poured their hearts and souls into these studies. It's hard not to take it kind of personally. It's like, oh my gosh, they didn't mm. pick my mission. But really, it's our goal is to, is to 
say these this is the way the future could be it could be this yeah. way or it could be this way and then somebody that has to look at all the constraints has to has to pick one of these and so the decadal survey will tell nasa this is what we think you should do nasa can then say well we like that or we don't like that and then there's a whole nasa process and then congress uh and hopefully you know the the, the partners isa and and other uh, international space agencies would want to partner with this. And it's NASA's job to figure out how do you put this all, all together. So apart from, you know, these big astrophysical missions, are there any inside our solar system that you're excited about in the coming decades, looking at our solar system planets in particular? Right. So we really need a, uh, uh, an ice giants mission. Uranus and Neptune were studied by Voyager. Uh, the, I, I took part in the in the previous, like the 2010 era, planetary science decadal, which is the same process but for the solar system. And we studied a uh, both Uranus and Neptune missions, including dropping a probe in. Um, and I still think, and unfortunately, NASA didn't pick those. They picked the, the big Mars Curiosity and uh, life searching on Mars, but. I think the time has come. We really need to go to the ice giants. And now, of course, we know from the exoplanet side that there's so many planets in this mass range. Uh, I get a little nervous when people call them, you know, Neptune-like planets because we really have no idea what they're what they're composed of. Um, but we need to study our own planets, have an orbiter around Uranus or Neptune, hopefully an atmospheric probe, to figure out how these systems work. Um, and so I'm very big on that. I think we also need to go back to Venus. I should also say LPL with my LPL hat on has a very exciting mission concept that's been proposed to, to have an orbiter around Io and study the volcanoes on Io or, or fly multiple flybys of Io uh, mm. to observe the volcanoes on Io. So there's a lot in the solar system at all different scales uh, to study, but th those are some of the things I'm excited about. Do you think the balance between astrophysics and planetary is uh, right? Or, or does it... Because, you know, we're talking about applying Louvre, which is a $10 billion space telescope to planets in the solar system, whereas you could spend pennies on that. You know, you could spend 1% of that and you might get a mission to, to Jupiter. So so um, is, is, there, is, there, is there a good balance between astrophysics and planetary science? Or? I think so. I think that okay. the, you know, and the, and these things serve multiple constituencies and look at the how long Hubble has lasted and the science that is done from observing the comet impacts on Jupiter uh, through long-term monitoring of uh, uh, Uranus and Neptune to all the UV stuff that, that HST has done and far more for the solar system. I think you'd see the same kind of connections and great diversity of science from from Mavar. Uh it's not i mean it's expensive solar system is expensive i mean sending a one thing we learned in the uranus and neptune study you know it's pretty much sending a brick to the outer solar system cost you a billion dollars before there's anything on it right so <laughs> these things uh these things add up and it's expensive uh you know no matter what you're doing yeah, so we've talked on the show a lot about ice, a lot about ice giants, a lot about mini Neptunes, Neptunes, exoplanets, solar system planets. Could you help us a little bit with the distinction between all of these different terms? Why are they called the ice giants? And and is that something that we could ever relate to exoplanets? Yeah, so I went on as uh, uh, Jesse Christensen asked, I think, uh, on Twitter once, you know, where did this come from? And I went on a dive to see, you know, where did this term really originate? And the oldest reference I found, um, I think it was in the 70s, I found somebody called them ice giants. And then it sort of picked up in the 80s as a, as a term. But ultimately, it goes back to the mass radius relationship, which tells you for a planet of a given mass made out of a given material, this is how big it will be. And the mass radius relationship is something figured out in the 40s and 50s with a very, very old idea is, you know, well known in planetary science. And then, you know, with all of a sudden with, but it was sort of like static, like, okay, we have the mass radius relationship, we're done with that. And Jupiter's big at a given mass, it has to be hydrogen and helium. Uh, Uranus and Neptune are smaller radius, they have a given mass. If they were pure hydrogen helium, they'd be much bigger. So you know 
Uranus and Neptune can't be hydrogen and helium. Um, on the other hand, if they were pure rock, they'd be much smaller. And so you know, okay, they can't be pure rock. And then it turns out, if these kind of intermediate things, what if they're made out of ices, which is something that means something to planet in planet within the planetary science context? Then oh, you get about the right radius. So it's this idea that the, oh, Uranus and Neptune are mostly ices. But what's ices? And ices has been a shorthand planetary science term for a long time for those things that condense in the outer solar system, water, ammonia, methane, um, into can form solids or when the solar system was forming, they would form little snowflakes of these things. And rather than listing all the molecules like I just did, planetary people just started calling them ices. And then when you have a whole planet made out of that stuff, it was natural to say, okay, it's a giant planet made out of ices. It's an ice giant. But just because you have a, you know, a Neptune mass planet orbiting close to its star and it's about the same radius, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a clone of Neptune, even though it's mm -hmm. Neptune's mass, right? And so maybe it's a different mixture of, say, pure rock and hydrogen helium that could also get you to that same radius. So it seems like it's one of those terms like metal or haze that means one thing in one context and maybe another in, in another context and can lead to maybe some misunderstanding along the way. Yeah, exactly. You know, the whole Neptune, uh, you know, exo-Neptune, it's really ruined it for trying to actually search literature on Neptunes. Now you type in Neptune, you get all this exoplanet planets, and it's a real problem. So we really need another name for this. Well, I think we need an ice giant mission to Neptune to fix that. There you go. Then all that will come up is a nice new mission to get pictures uh, and data on Neptune yes. itself. So it, it seems to follow then that understanding those those ice giants that we have in our solar system might help us to understand a little bit more about what we're seeing in in exoplanets as well. Those ones that don't seem to line up quite right on the on the mass radius diagram. That learning about them can can help us to learn about exoplanets too. Right, and so you know, we you one of the main main ways we learn about the interiors of planets is from their you know, their gravitational fields, careful measurements of their gravitational fields, like the Juno mission at Jupiter is providing wonderful data for the fine structure of Jupiter's gravity field. And then that then be infer gives you information to infer what the interior is made out of. And so we don't really know for sure the structure, the vertical structure through the atmosphere down into the interior uh, of Uranus and Neptune. And is it, you know, how is the hydrogen helium distributed? How are the rocks distributed? Is everything kind of mixed together? Are there distinct layers? And we just don't know. And so having a mission tells you those things. And then once you understand that for these planets, that gives you the uh, ability to in the inside to say, okay, let's go back and look at these you know, uh, hot Neptunes uh, that maybe have the same mass, but do we think we do we think these same processes that formed our own ice giants would necessarily have formed these? Or would they be different? And, you know, I mean, all these issues, all these classic current exoplanet issues, the radius valley and, and all these things relate probably to formation and atmospheric escape. And studying our own ice giants, I think, would give a lot of insight into these things. And as I've said before, it feels like we're missing that that super Earth in our solar system that might help to to bridge that gap a little bit. I, this comes up every five episodes or so. I say that we need one of them in our solar system. We don't have one. <laughs> And also we need more Venus missions. You know, there hasn't been very many Venus missions. And I sort of have this fear that, you know, LeVar goes out and starts looking for, for Earths and they all turn out to be Venuses. And so it's really important to understand, you know, how did Venus get the way it is? How did Earth get the way it is? You know, if you think of like you're parking your car in a very busy parking lot, it's very hard to get into the space, but it's very easy to get out. And so is our habitable planets like that? Is it very hard to get into just the right niche, but is it easy to, to get out and turn into a Venus? And so that's another you know, class of planets we need to pay attention to. Yeah, we had uh, we had Stephen Kane on the uh, on the show a few episodes ago, and he's he's very much a Venus champion. So um, I, I think, yeah, probably, hopefully a lot of our listeners are going towards the the Venus side as well. Let's start petitioning for more <laughs> Venus missions. We need both. We need all these missions. True. Just less Mars. I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. 
<laughs> My wife studies Mars, so I am neutral on that topic. Okay. <laughs> Very good idea. Very diplomatic. Talk, talking about competing planets, I mean, we can't have you on the show and not discuss the Exo Cup because I know you're you follow it every year, right? And you have occasionally cheerleaded for direct imaging planets. And who could forget the the trifecta of directly imaged planets in 2019? So, so what do you think about the competition and even just like in general using Twitter for engagement and science outreach? I think it's, I mean, it's fun. It's definitely something that gets, that uh, uh, gets a lot of attention from people and it's a great science outreach. Uh, the ExoCup is, although, you know, it, would, it was completely rigged a few years ago when <laughs> all the wrong planets won. <laughs> no, but, um, uh, but like I said before, I love the, I love the directly imaged planets. I'm a big directly imaged planet champion, but, um, I just kind of fell into Twitter. I created an account and, you know, like, what is this? What can you do with it? And kind of over time, I've tried different, you know, tried to, to learn from it. Um, and I've learned a lot from, you know, sort of the younger generation of astronomers who talk a lot about all kinds of things. And it's been really, you know, really informative for me uh, to see. But uh, I think, yeah, no, it's great for, for, for outreach and getting people excited. Are there any planets that are on your on your radar for this year? Recent discoveries that you think might be doing pretty well? I mean, we don't have to you know to tell us about your doctor planet just yet, but I don't know. We we also have like recently discovered planets as well as favorite planets. So I don't know if there's anything that you think might be doing pretty well this year when we eventually get round to the cup. I don't know. I don't know. I haven't uh, putting you on the spot. The, uh, we're we're waiting for really like the GPI survey. You know, we did our survey. This was to go look for for young Jupiters. And right now, uh, the Gemini Planet Imager is getting an upgrade. There's going to be the Gemini Planet Imager 2, and that's going to be going to Mauna Kea. And hopefully we'll you know, be finding new things. The, uh, you know, the Spheres folks are finding things. Gravity is finding things. And character doing a great job characterizing planets. So I think uh, we're going to be seeing a lot more directly imaged planets in the, in the years to come. Well, I think that's a good way to segue into the part of the show where we really ask the toughest question. We put you on the spot and you now get to select your favorite planet to join a family of very weird and wacky worlds that our ExoCast crew have been putting together for the last four years. So which planet have you chosen to add to the ExoCast's ultimate list? Well, I would go with 51 Area B. Um, which was the first directly imaged planet found by GPI. It's the only planet discovery paper I'm a co-author on. So of course <laughs> it's, my, it's my favorite planet. But it's interesting because all the other directly imaged planets are very cloudy, a little bit warmer. 51 Airy is sort of the coolest directly imaged planet seen so far. Uh, it has methane in its atmosphere. And it's there's this, you know, in brown dwarf, Going back to the brown dwarfs, there's this transition from very cloudy, warmer brown dwarfs to cooler, less cloudy, or not cloudy at all brown dwarfs, uh, which is known as the L-type to T-type, which is a whole other story. But how the objects lose their clouds, how the brown dwarfs lose their clouds and become cloudless is still something that's not really well understood, but again is central to understanding exoplanets. And 51 Airy has gone through this transition, has lost most of its clouds, has methane in its atmosphere. And so it's really a, an interesting planet to study to tell us about the whole life cycle of, uh, of um, giant planets. Now, you're not the first person to select 51 Airy. It's been in our, our family before. So one thing, like, is there something exciting that we can do with this world moving forward with new observations coming online? Are there other parts of it that we don't understand yet that we can start looking into? Well, the whole, it's been interesting because, you know, I've told you, though, you know, I've done this atmosphere modeling for my, my whole career. And it's this modeling works very well on solar system atmospheres. It works very well on the ground dwarf atmospheres, but the directly imaged atmospheres have always been the directly imaged planets have always been a bit of a struggle. And so it's, uh, as we get, we just need more and more data <clears throat> and with the, the 30 meter telescopes coming online and also uh, just new instrumentation that's coming online. that's going to give us much higher spectral resolution data, I think you're going to see that uh, these planets, which have kind of dropped out of the consciousness a little bit, 
uh, are going to really see a resurgence as there's a whole new era of uh, high-resolution spectroscopy and ultimately with the big telescopes, uh, characterization at many more wavelengths. And so understanding the rotation rate, the, the, the atmospheric vertical structure, the clouds, what's going on with the clouds, possible photochemistry because these are companions to stars, and they do get UV fluxes comparable to what we see in the outer solar system. Um, and there's a lot to unpack there, and I think um, a lot more to see in the coming years. I always love a good excuse to reshow the GIF of the methane in the atmosphere of 51 Airy, so we can definitely put that one up for this. Perfect selection as well for our 51st episode, 51. Uh, <laughs> that was planned. <laughs> <laughs> Now that we have two votes for it, maybe it can move up the list of the next uh, exit. <laughs> I'm sure it'll be in there, right? I mean, it's, it's one of those that tends to get in, I think, most most years. So. Most, most of the time. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for coming on the show. That was a really detailed and in-depth interview where I think we grilled you a little more than you were possibly expecting. But I think <laughs> our listeners will be really interested in everything you have to say and, and the experience across so many different fields that we've talked about on the show for many years now. So thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you. And it's a, it's a pleasure to be on. Thank you for inviting me. I, I've always wanted to be on ExoCast, so finally I can check that off the bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> ExoCast. Awesome. Well, thanks for listening. And don't forget to look out for our other episode this month, in which we go through a few of the last month's most exciting exoplanetary news. Um, you can also get in touch with us to let us know your thoughts on the show at exo underscore cast on Twitter and you can find all of our other episodes on our website exocast.org or on iTunes, Spotify and other good podcasting apps um, uh, a massive appreciative shout out to all of those who've contributed to our Buy Me A Coffee including especially Ralph who this month donated a whopping $100 to support us um, so we hope you've enjoyed this fascinating interview, Ralph, as well as everyone else, of course. Um, and if you want to support the show, you can also donate at buymeacoffee.com slash exocast. Um, and you can, of course, get our oh, exocast merchandise on exocast.threadless.com as well, if you want to contribute there. But for now, thanks very much for listening, and, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Exocast. I have exoplanets. This podcast was brought to you by the Exocast team. Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Hugh Osborne, the Tess K-Ops Fellow at MIT and the University of Bern. And Andrew Rushby, a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Thanks for listening.